mustache tails. Yeah! This is what episode of, of, of mustache tails? It doesn't really matter, but, but our, our incredible guest is James Roday. Uh, he's sitting here, I imagine, in California. Um, but the show we're talking about, James Roday from Psych, uh, from a million little things or pieces? Things. You nailed it. Few people million do. Million little things. And of course, Dukes yeah. of Hazard and Beer Fest. Um, uh, but, but the show you guys were talking about before we really got into this was called Nailed It. Um, nailed It. Yes. And Nailed It was, you know, they said to me, hey, my agent calls me and goes, hey, would you do uh, my friend's show? They need a celebrity. Um, and I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. And I said, but I only have, I only have like an hour because I got to go pick up my kids. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Of course, the agent's like, no problem. So we're like, we're cooking these George Bush, or no, 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 we're cooking Donald Trump cakes. Like, they, that's the thing they decided because they wanted the contestants to try to cook a cake. But if you're an, if you're not a professional cake baker, your cake's gonna look like shit, which they were trying to make Donald Trump look like. I imagine. They succeed. Uh, and so they're putting the cakes in the oven around the hour point. And I'm like, <laughs> are we like, how do we judge the cakes if they're not done yet? And they're like, oh, no, no, no. You look at them when they're done. I'm like, when? They're like, it'll be about an hour. About an hour. And I'm like, no, no, no. I got to go. I got to go. I told the guys. <laughs> I told the guys I got to go. And they're like, what? So I go. And I'm like, I'll come back. I'll come back. I'll be, I'll be back as fast as I can. But when I come back, I, I make a critical error, which is I bring a cup of, 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 of coffee from Starbucks. So I clearly stopped off at Starbucks. I didn't come back as fast <laughs> as I could. And they're like, oh, you stopped for Starbucks. I'm like, no, no, I brewed it in the garage. And they're yeah. like, what? Like they, somebody believed that. Um, cause people have asked me, do you have a brewing thing in your garage? Like, you know, so then I, 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 I'm like, oh, they'll cut all this crap out and they'll pretend like I never left. Right. They'll just go, okay, here, we'll just do the Hollywood thing. And when, and when I see it, they put all the Hollywood of it thing in. being leaving or editing. They, I thought they cut everything out. Just, I never left. Right. They just, uh, you know, show business, but they cut me leaving. They cut me coming back. I have the coffee. They cut that in. And they're trying to mock me, I think. They're trying to come at me and make me the villain of their show. Meanwhile, I become a superstar with children. Yeah. I have taken so many pictures with like seven, eight, nine-year-olds who are like, you're a good daddy because you went to get your kids in the shop. <laughs> and I'm like, I have a good daddy. Thank you. Sure. So I got over on them. You're a good daddy and a husband who doesn't want to be yelled at when he Boy, gets home. I was in trouble that day. I mean, that's a scheduling. You were just balancing schedules. That's right. So did the um, show get picked up, nailed it? it? It became a real it, cooking show? It ran for years. Yeah. It's yeah, a huge- I think multiple seasons. All yeah. I to say, it's not just Jay's move on his own podcast. Um, it's out there in the world. It's other people's shows. It's pilot episodes. It's on camera. Yep. It's non-discriminatory. You know, he drops mics whenever he feels like it, quite frankly. It's it's just it's just a power move. It's amazing. Um, so, James, the, the way we start these shows is we usually tell a story. Well, I know I just told the story, but we're going to tell one more story. Um, and that's our little tale today. So, 
When I made the Dukes of Hazard, Warner Brothers said we wanted to have that real Super Troopers vibe. I said, stop right there. I said, I'll make this movie on one condition, two conditions. We get to hire Burt Reynolds and Willie Nelson. And the executive looks at me, he goes, to play the Duke boys? And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, but I'd see that movie, right? Uh, and so <laughs> we cast Burt Reynolds and Willie Nelson. I was shocked. These are my childhood heroes. Uh, and then we cast Johnny Knoxville, Sean William Scott, Jessica Simpson, uh, uh, Joe Don Baker. Uh, and we got a little real stacked up cast, right? And now we got to cast the bad guy uh, race car driver. And I'm like, and I'm seeing comics perform auditions for this role. And I've seen James Roday do it, who is, you know, forgive my French, a nobody at the time. Um, and, but he kills the audition. He's hilarious, but this is like a big part in a big Hollywood movie. And the studio's like, who do you want for, uh, for Billy Prickett? And I'm like, James Roday. And they're like, who? And I'm like, James Roday. And they're like, nah, 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 nah. We're going big. This is Warner Brothers, buddy. We're not going James Roday. So I'm like, well, who, what, what? We'll make a list. We'll take a look at the list. So the first guy I meet is Josh Brolin. Uh, and I'm like, well, I love Josh Brolin. Who doesn't love Josh Brolin, right? But he he you know, he was he's awesome, right? But he's he's not he's not as much of a joke cracker as my man James Roday here, right? And I thought, you know, look, we got all these other guys. What do we need? Can't we just do this? And luckily, in my opinion, even though I'd love to work with Josh Brolin, uh, he said no. So I'm like, Guess we're going to James Roday. Wow, I didn't, I didn't see where that was. <laughs> I thought, I thought for sure it was going to come down to the choice that you made. You set him up as your first choice. Yeah, and and it was Brolin was off doing like No Country for Old Men. Yeah, and he's like, I don't think I'm going to do the Dukes of Hazard, and I'm like, okay, that's all right. So I soft sold him, but it didn't. Luckily, he didn't go for it. Uh, and then they're like, what about McConaughey? And I'm like. All right, all right, all right. I mean, who can say no to McConaughey, right? So there I am in McConaughey's trailer in Malibu. He has a he has three trailer homes that are connected in Malibu. And I go in there about 9.30 in the morning. He's like, you want a beer? And I'm like, okay. So we're sitting there drinking beer, <laughs> talking about the Dukes of Hazard, 9.30 in the morning. And I'm like looking at him. I'm like, he's funny, but he's not... He, uh, and um, McConaughey is like, I don't think I'm going to do your film, but I appreciate you coming out to Mount. And I'm like, all right. So I go back and I'm like, I don't know. He doesn't want to do it. And so they're like, show us this James Roday again. And we, I show him this. I mean, it was a goofball audition, like full on comedy audition. And they're like, that's who you really want? I'm like, yeah. They're like, all right. I mean, we're not, you know, we're selling the movie off Jessica Simpson anyway, so James wrote it. Uh, and we, I mean, and so we, I get him down to Baton Rouge, and it's a miracle, I thought, showbiz miracle. Uh, and, and he walks in, and the first scene he's shooting is a really big scene with Burr Reynolds. Uh, and the scene is where Boss Hogg, as Burt Reynolds, comes to see his guy, Billy Prickett, and talk to him about the big race and how important it is to win this race. 
uh, uh, and and James is a kind of a kind of a newer actor from a Hollywood perspective. You act in a ton, a ton of things, but this was like suddenly you were in, in a big Warner Brothers movie with Burt Reynolds. Uh, you want to tell the rest? Sure. Uh, I would give I would give the the additional contact that I had found out that I had gotten the role. Um, roughly 48 hours before I was needed um, on set for the first for the first day I was shooting. And I was sitting in traffic on the 405, and I actually thought my agent at the time was fucking um, I thought he was pranking me uh, because I hadn't heard anything about this movie since I auditioned probably. And I was like, well, clearly uh, they're up against it, and maybe somebody fell out. I don't know. I don't care. Uh, you're going to Baton Rouge. Uh, first thing in the morning. So it was one of those types of gigs. And I would also add that the first day I was supposed to shoot, uh, they didn't get to my scene. And it wasn't the bird scene. It was the scene where uh, we we run into the Duke boys out on a highway somewhere oh, yeah. and there's a oh, little yeah. smack talk between Billy and Bo. And we ran out of time. And I remember going back to the hotel going, they have an opportunity to replace me now because I have not appeared on camera. And I didn't sleep that night. I was like, I think this is how big Hollywood movies work. I think there's like, I think they make these types of decisions and then they, you know, they tell me that they don't need my services and I guess I'll get paid. But that's sometimes I don't think I'm true. Be, that's sometimes but, true. I don't think I'm going to be in this movie. Um, <laughs> so I was like, I had a sleepless night. And then, um, and then the next morning it was like, not. Nah, good i had a call time and uh and so i show up and i hadn't slept much and now i have a real scene uh with a bunch of dialogue opposite uh burt reynolds i walk on set and there he is and uh you know he's he's burt i mean he's he's a little bit older than like he was in sharky's machine but he's still burt and he's in the he's in the boss hog outfit, and he's got the hat on. And you remember that like, day they brought they brought the bandit, the black Trans Am, to set, and he was taking pictures with the black Trans Am, and you're like, "Whoa!" Absolutely remember that day. And um, needless to say, it's the biggest set I've ever been on. Um, it was the best crash service I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, the crew was enormous. And uh, and I was nervous, like I was legitimately nervous. Um, and Bert, and I don't know if Jay set this up, and God bless him if he did. But Bert uh, saw that you know I was a green kid, uh, and he came over and uh, he didn't punch me. I, that's not where this is headed. Um, he put his arm around me and he's like, "Let's take a walk, kid. You and me." And so the next thing I know, I'm taking a walk with Burt Reynolds, like away from set. Um, and we're in Baton Rouge. So I don't know where we were headed, but wherever it was, it probably wasn't pretty, but he was still, it's the thought that passed it. It's on the me. And, and we're walking away from set in Baton Rouge. And uh, he just starts telling me a story. He starts telling me a story about one of his earlier jobs, you know, as an actor and uh, how he didn't know shit because he had mostly been a stuntman and, uh, you know, it's really, it's really just about listening and being present and it doesn't matter who else is watching or that there are cameras there and that it's going to be great. He's giving me like a straight up no frills, no bits, like 
veteran sage Yoda to like young Luke who doesn't even know where his lightsaber is acting pep talk. And then he walks me back on set and we shoot. And uh, I don't know, Jay. I mean, the scenes, it's not incredible. No one, no one, like a scene that doesn't work in the movie. No, the scene is incredible. It's fantastic. It was so cool to watch you guys walk off, even though I'm like, where the hell are they going? But uh, uh, it was cool. I mean, Bert, you know, I have uh, a lot of stories where Bert is uh, uh, did throw punches by my head, never connected, um, though I was ready for the connect. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I was going to, I already had a plan what I was going to do. I, I was gonna, I was gonna just lay him down on the ground, uh, which is something I, I didn't want to do. But I was like thirty six, and he was seventy, whatever. I mean, I could take any seventy, whatever year old. I can tell you that. Uh, and now I know you're gonna go, okay, Stallone, Schwarzenegger. Okay, fine, those. Guys. But um, Burt Reynolds I, I, at the time, I could have taken. But he could punch anyway. Whatever. There are a lot of bad stories about Burt. A lot of rough stories that, about Burt. That- that moment for him to to take the time to a young actor coming on set and take him for a walk and give him just like not a rah-rah pep talk or here's how it all works kid just to settle people down is i mean that's a gift that's incredible that's yeah something that yeah you take with you your whole career i had the opposite experience um one of the times that i was on set with uh, a named actor for the first time it was gary Busey. And we were doing a ridiculous movie um, where I was like in a loincloth with a, it was like a caveman comedy. And he came into this film for like three days. And, you know, we were down there for months in, in Austin shooting. But it was still like, you know, oh, cool. But- Gary Busey's here. Yeah, this is fun. I, you know, I get to beat in a lot and, and he's there. And so there's some stupid scene where he's tied up to a tree. We're like holding him hostage and he wakes up for a moment. And then I'm speaking and then I look over and I take my club and I, I swing it at his head and then he passes back out, right? To make, so the cameras are rolling and, and I go and I'm saying my stuff and then I turn and he goes, all right, wakes up and I, I take the club and I, I swing it like that. You know, I, I missed it. I Hollywood in front of his face. So it looks like a hit and I do it. And in the middle of the scene, he didn't take me for a walk and calm my nerves. In the middle of the scene, he goes, what the fuck was that? And I go, what? He goes, you don't just swing that bat at my head. You take a beat, son. You take a beat. You look at me, and then you swing the club. And he just eviscerated me about how bad I sold my gag of knocking him out in front of hundreds of people. That's what I take with me. He's not wrong, though. Right, I don't yeah. I was gonna necessarily. Ask. I'm not a fan of the guy. He's like, you look at me, you hold it, and then you hit it, and They're that's right. how you sell the trick. But he didn't take me for Burt Reynolds' Bach, Fort Duke's a hazard scene. <laughs> I mean, he was tied up. There's no way he was walking anywhere. But he could have called you over to him, you know. And uh, a million, a million ways to to live. address that to a, a young green actor. I mean, come on. I, I, I am forever grateful. I am forever grateful to to Jay for giving me that uh, bizarre opportunity that I never thought I would have, and then eternally grateful to Bert for 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 gifting me such a such a sweet experience with an icon. Um, 
that in very in very in so many ways juxtaposes a lot of the stories that that I think we've heard about about Bert over the years. And it's nice that I can slip this one in with all the ones where he just you know beats the shit out of people or throws water on them in front of their girlfriends. Like it's nice that there was this side of him. Uh, well, no, he told the greatest. Uh, Hollywood stories of anybody I've ever met. And he also had a, a trick to it, which was he, he would start the story. He goes, ever tell you a story about the time I was drinking uh, in Midtown at a club with the offensive line of the New York Jets? And I'm like, we just met. Oh, you definitely haven't told me that. But And then he would... <laughs> progressively get quieter and quieter and qu- so at the end you're like you're literally like you're leaning your ear into his lips to hear the end of the story and it's such an incredible technique um but yeah. he, he told me this story he goes he goes there i was i was 72 or 73 i'm sitting at this booth with all these big hunks of meat and i look over and in the next booth over there's this skinny Dago Wop sitting there, grease ball, when he's got four of the hottest chicks I've ever seen in my life. Now I'm at the I don't know what year it was. He goes, I'm at the peak. I'm at the peak of Hollywood. And this guinea motherfucker sitting there with four of the hottest broads. And I'm like, that ain't gonna happen. So I get up and I walk over there and I'm sure I'm flirting with these girls. I'm totally ignoring the dude, just not even looking at him. And he starts talking to me, and I start talking to him. And then I'm like, hey, you want to go outside? And now me and him are outside, and it's cold. It's February in New York City, so it's about 30, maybe 24, whatever. And we start swinging, right? And we're rowers going around. We're, in, we're actually we're in a circle. We're going in a circle. We're circle. And he goes, when this day go hits me, I say, uh-oh, because he has a ton of power in that punch. But I'm Burt Reynolds, so I'm like, bam, and we're going back and forth, and we're going back and forth, and after about two minutes, we are like sweating and out of breath, and I go, can we take a break? And he says, yeah. And I say, hi, I'm Burt Reynolds, and he says, hi, I'm Mario Andretti. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I mean, it's so fun. He's... I mean, that, that's why you love him. I mean, it yeah. was Mario Andretti. Yeah. He was. Yeah. It was Mario Andretti. <laughs> Isn't he famous for looking Burt Reynolds when he was doing Smokey and the Bandit? Like the best part of so much of that performance were the outtakes at the at the end of the movie where you got to see like him yeah. and Deloise doing their shtick. Just looks so fun where he would always look right into the camera and be like, be good to me today, baby. Make me look good. Make uh-huh. me look good. Yeah. It directly <laughs> to the camera. Dom was always with kryptonite. Like Dom could like break him in any seat, which I always thought right. was very sweet. Like he, he just couldn't not laugh at his buddy. Complicated fake, a mysterious fake, Bert. May rest. Yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated guy. Um <laughs> I I actually like him. I mean, I, I don't you know I Despite some of the things that we went through, I like him because it was like for me, he was my hero. 
Like, you know, like in a way, the mustache I grew in Super Troopers was a tribute to Burt Reynolds' mustache. Like, this is an important guy for me. <laughs> so, like, you end up... Like you, got, you got him at a, at a good time. I mean, he was still feisty. He was still Burt, but he was older. And I think he'd reached a point in his life where he, he appreciated being appreciated. Yeah. And he actually... The fans coming over and saying, and he liked telling those stories. And, sure, and I think that was that was a good that was a good time to have him. Yeah, I thought so. Um, okay, he was he was in on the joke. Yeah, exactly. Mostly, uh, yeah, mostly. <laughs> uh, so after that, James, you you appeared in um, as in the pivotal role of the. Uh, the German delivery boy in Beer Fest. You bring the German team. The German team is um, is uh, working out and trying to get better at drinking beer and pouring beer into their mouths while they lift weights. And you come and deliver uh, the beer that the American team has brewed, which is the same exact recipe as their their secret beer that they've been dominating with and once they get that beer they're like oh no somebody else knows about our recipe and they decide they have to kill you the messenger um because you know now that they that the beer is out there it was a big long way of us trying to do the don't shoot the messenger joke um one <laughs> or don't stick rubber Rubber clubs up the messenger's nose, Joe. Right. So, yeah, yeah. To, in order to kill him, what they do is they take these kegs of flowing beer and they put tubes of it up his nose, in his mouth, I believe in your ass as well. Um, it, we definitely wrote that. I'm not sure if we shot that. I remember my father, who's a physician, was sitting there on the side of the stage, and I'm like, "Cut! That was great." And he goes, "You know that will kill him, right?" And I was like, <laughs> "I was like, yeah." I said, but if you put that much liquid into a person, they will they will not survive. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're trying to kill him. He goes, oh, <laughs> that's not nice. After putting me in Dukes of Hazard, there was nothing that I would have said no to uh, at that point. I definitely owed J1 uh, in a big, big way. And uh, so I came in in a page boy wig. And believe it or not, uh, at least once a year, even though I find myself to be somewhat unrecognizable in that yeah. in that one scene, someone at an airport will scream out from across, you know, the gate. Beer fest! So thank <laughs> thank you for that. That's, I mean, I love that scene. I love that scene. It's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Where were you coming from before the long running series that you've been part of, which I want to talk with you about and break down? Um, and figure out the trick to how that works because it's uh, incredible. It really is. I want to talk about that. But where were you coming from before those first couple roles you had? Um, I had come out to do uh, a very short-lived Fox series. And when it got canceled, I thought, oh, I'll just go back to New York. I was like, I'm just going to go back to New York was where I thought I was going to be anyway. And I'll do theater, and I don't know, maybe TV's not my thing. And then I got like two more pilots that that would 
get picked up and then canceled before we could even finish like five episodes. And so I, I became convinced that maybe I was the, I myself was the kiss of death for these projects because the only thing that was linked them all was that I was in them. Um, so I was, I was really, I was about to kind of hang it up in terms of like trying to, to be an LA actor. Like I, I really sort of thought that, you know what, this is not, this is not my jam. Um, and then I got the Dukes of Hazard uh, crazy unexpectedly. And the Dukes of Hazard definitely played a big role in me getting psych. So, you know, it was like, I think the movie opened really well at like number one. Um, and I think that was like the week that I had my meeting for psych. And it's the only time in my career uh, or you know, then, now, or in the future, probably, that I'll take a meeting with anyone whilst being in the number one movie in America. Um, and if that doesn't yield something, then I think you're probably doing it wrong. Um, that that means see that that's a trip because you're carrying the ball so much in psych for so many scenes. You, you know, I, there's yeah, an incredible supporting cast, but a lot of that was not necessarily a skill you had shown people who were taking the bet on you at that time, right? I mean, it's almost every scene of that show. It's true. Um, I didn't even I didn't even think of myself as a comedic actor, really. I mean, I'd, I'd gone to NYU to study theater, didn't do a lot of comedy there. We all took ourselves way too seriously coming out of that program. Um, and we'll... You know, you you find yourself auditioning for comedies, and then you get into a couple of them, and then you're you know you're you're playing a ridiculous role in a in a big movie directed by Jay, and and then you get a meeting for a comedy uh, series of being the lead, and the light kind of goes on of like, all right, clearly people think you're funny, so you better figure out like how to how to polish this. Like your job now is to accept the fact that you know people want you to be funny and that comedy is clearly you know your way onto the train um but it was definitely like a shift for me it wasn't like oh dude i i figured this is where i would land hell no uh but when it happened i just thought okay um it's time to start studying you know all of your favorite comedic actors and stealing everything you possibly can at least out of the gate to sort of establish some sort of uh, some sort of baseline for how you're going to do this. So, you know, I went back and started watching, you know, every Eddie Murphy movie, every Chevy Chase movie. You know, I watched Real Genius so many times that I could quote the whole movie. And uh, I just sort of started kind of building a foundation of stuff that I liked and stuff that worked for me and um, how to throw away a joke and a bunch and stuff that nobody taught me in college, you know, in theater school. And that first season of Psych, especially, was so much trial and error. It's it would never happen today, you know, because we were we were on a fledgling network that most people didn't even know had original content. They probably only knew that USA existed because wrestling was on it. Um, you know, and then Monk Monk came along and kind of gave him some street cred, and and that's ultimately what bought us the opportunity to kind of find our sea legs on that show. But I mean, I was doing all kinds of all kinds of crazy shit, just trying to sort of see what, what would stick and what would work. And I was doing it in real time, like while the cameras were rolling. So it was, it was a lot of on the job training 
um, for Dulé and I both, because Dulé had never done a comedy either. Like he was, he was coming, coming up West Wing, right? Screwing off the West Wing, where not only was it not particularly funny, like you couldn't change a word, like you couldn't change a letter in those scripts. Meanwhile, I was mostly improvising <laughs> all of the time. Um, and he was like, dude, what are you doing? Like, are you trying to sabotage the show? I'm like, I don't think I am. Like, it's not, I promise, it's not like, that's, that's not my intention at all. Um, I think I'm just trying to find the tone, man. I think I'm just trying to find out what this, what this show is. So I kind of need you to trust me and sort of enroll with it. And uh, he did, to his credit. And, you know, the rest is beautiful, lucky us history. I mean, that's- it had a great trick to it, didn't it? That first, the, 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 you're, you're pretending to be a, a psychic, but you just you're noticing everything, and it's the sign of a great series. It's a game you can play over and over and over and over again, and it can wear a million different stories and a million different costumes, and it works. It did, and I don't think I, either of us knew that that it would have. The effect that it did or the legs that it did. I mean, at the time, we were just trying to sort of make each episode as funny as possible and, and kind of land the plane by the end and hope that it was getting a little bit better uh, each time. But certainly, um, if you had asked me like that first season, hey, do you think you got a hit on your hands? I probably would have said, no, I've never been in a show that lasted longer than 10 minutes. This will get canceled while we're doing this interview, probably. Um yeah. You know, Dulé Hill is so good in West Wing. But like when you think about what ended up becoming of your partnership, your comedic partnership, you're like, who could have seen it coming? I mean, I knew I, I hear when I hear you talk about not being a comic, I find it strange because the 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 audition was so right in line with the way comedy comedians audition like you know like Keckner was in that movie and Heffer Kevin Heffernan was in that movie you know like I was like and and showing Scott was the bridge between the you know between the more serious actors like Bert and the comics to me Sean was like the yeah. center bridge but you fit neatly on this other side with with Heffernan and Keckner in my view um I mean, there's a scene in the Duke's Ezra where you're driving in the middle of a race, like a full-on race, and you pull up a big gulp and start sipping on <laughs> a big gulp. But we put that in the movie, like, like that was just. I mean, I, you came. I, I don't know. I think you came up with it. Like, it's like there's. It feels like you're a very natural comic, and that's interesting to hear. Maybe you just didn't realize it yet. Um, cause you've yeah, got, you've, you've got timing and you've got innovation and you're, you know, you're, you improvise within the scene, which I think is sort of the key. Uh, uh, but Dulé Hill, you're like, how is that going to work? And then boom, this guy is, got, he's incredibly funny too. He's got so many great, great bits and psych. You can't even believe it. it. It's such a gift to work with someone for so long that you, you truly can start anticipating what moves the other guy's going to make in the middle of a scene and and know what you're going to do back without having to talk about it like there's so many scenes in that in that show where you know we both came from our trailers didn't speak a word and halfway through the scene have taken it 
all the way to the left. We're off the script. We're dancing. We're doing whatever we're doing. And we never broke it down. We never said, hey, I'm going to try this. Think about doing this. It was just, we got to a point where our language was, yeah, we know what each other do. Just roll the camera. We'll see what happens. And yeah. that's so fun. Every day was so fun on that show. And I um, directed, I can't remember whether it was like five or seven or nine, something like that, right? It was a, it was a prime number. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, I remember being like, where, what are, what, what scene is this? Because <laughs> you guys were off. And I'm like, yeah. And then it would start to roll back to the story. And I'm like, oh, there it is. There it is. And then it's just kind of, okay, okay. That's yeah. got to speak to chemistry <laughs> with the showrunner too, right? I mean, someone who can. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, early on he was there and then he was sending people up, uh, I guess, who he believed could deliver a version of his show that he was happy with because he was he was back in L.A. For, for a good chunk of it too, right? I mean, there were times it was just me and the writer. Yeah. And we're like, uh, yeah. I think this is it, right? Uh, he deserves deserves so much he deserves so much of credit for yeah for allowing that show to to sort of become what it was agreed agreed yeah. uh because you know and we turn in these i turn in a cut and they go you want to come back and do another one i'm like i guess we did okay uh uh <laughs> um and the cool you thing about one what's that you acted you acted in one I acted in one i played a choreographer uh who was like um, maybe a suspect in a killing. Was I the killer? No, no, I wasn't the killer. Uh, you were I red hair. Yeah, I was the I was the yeah the suspect. And then was my cousin the killer? Was Sendel the killer? No, he was the one that everything was happening to, oh. um, and believed that maybe it was a curse because there was always some fake supernatural element yeah. usually that they had to get Scooby Dude by the end. Um, right. So my cousin Sendel Ramamurthy, who became famous for Heroes, uh, he's a really good actor, also from San Antonio, where, where James is from, um, and also a very good tennis player like James. And so my cousin, I remember he PA'd for me on my first film, Puddle Cruiser, Sendel Ramamurthy, and he was sleeping on my couch and he had long hair down to his waist. And he goes, I said, what do you, what do you, what, what do you want to do in show business? He goes, I want to be an actor. And I'm like, you're never going to make it. I said, I said, let me tell you something. I said, first of all, I had to bully my way into this and I'm the only Indian in show business right now. I said, the idea that you also are going to be there with me, it's, I think it's just never going to happen. Plus your hair's down to your ass. I said, by the way, just get in the crew side of it if you want to do anything. And he goes, Okay, I'll, I'll take that seriously. So then he, I don't see him for four years. He goes to London, comes back, and I'm like, I'm watching TV, and boom, he's on the show Heroes. And I'm like, what the hell happened there? And so, um, you know, and so anyway, we, then he becomes a successful actor now, and, and we get to act together in Psych, uh, which was so cool. Um, you, know, you know how at the, during the course of every long night, there's, if if you're drinking, there's one drink that you can attribute to putting you over the edge. Yeah. yeah. Like you can kind of pin yeah. it back to, uh, at my wedding, uh, Sendel came up to me with a shot of tequila. Oh, 
like not just a shot of tequila, like a double shot of tequila. And I attribute that, <laughs> that to, to the whole wedding just taking <laughs> off to like a level 10. It was Sendel that set me off. Because <laughs> my wife was on the right. show with him at the time. And they he's still a, a great friend. And, and he was there. And everyone was, you know, we were dancing and it was all great. And then I had that shot. And the next thing you know, you know, he had a tray of them. He was handing out and someone threw a chair at the band. Was that you? Uh-oh. No, it was not me. <laughs> <laughs> and to the band's credit, they just went, guys, come on, knock it off. And we were, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then they just kept playing. But Sendel was, Sendel was the straw that stirred the drink. <laughs> it actually wasn't stirred. It was a shot. I forgot that. I forgot that. Did you know that he and I were cousins? No, not until yeah. just now. Yeah. And I thought uh, you were talking about you being cousins on the show. Your cousins in real cousins, life? We're cousins, yeah. Uh, uh, and Hayes is married to uh, Allie Larder, Jane, um, who was on Heroes. Um, there you go. It all, it all comes back together. Uh, but the great thing about Psych on top of everything was it was fun to watch you roll through your 80s Rolodex of that was one of my favorite actors. I'm going to make I'm going to get them on the show as a guest star. I mean, that happened, right? I would say probably by the time we hit season three, that's all we did. Uh, everybody had their lists and, you know, it was it was bittersweet. It was sweet in that just about everybody said yes. And so there you were on set working with people who helped shape you um, as a young person. The The bitter half of it was that, unfortunately, a lot of them, just weren't working that much anymore. Oh. And, you know, they they weren't getting called that often. And so, you know, yes, you got to work with like people that you, you know, there was hero hero worship for some of us. But then they would come up and do psych and then that was kind of like that was it. You know, like yeah. that that and so we were kind of we were collecting, it was like an island of sort of misfit toys in a way where we always were just like, oh my God, can you believe this person is coming? But then, you know, we take sort of two steps back and look at it through a different set of, of lenses and you're like, well, yeah. We don't mean to cut you off, but you're dovetailing exactly the way that you have those people that you admire come play on a show that, you know, you guys are off to the races and they're happy to come work and join the, and join the group. You know, you realize that if making a living and I'm kind of dovetailing because I want to get your guys' thoughts on the strike and, and what's happening, but how hard it is when you see someone who's been on shows and doing stuff and it can be one or two years where they don't earn income and they lose their insurance. So even though the rest of the world, I just read, you know, this morning, Aaron Paul had, um, he kind of publicly aired this grievance that uh, Netflix is running um, all of Breaking Bad and, and no one is seeing any residuals from that massive hit show staying on Netflix. So it's like if you're really looking at how to make a sustainable industry and you don't have gifts of like Psych giving you guest star roles and bringing you in, you're just off to pasture. There's no way to to really survive if you don't have that income stream for the successes you had earlier. Yeah, yeah I that's mean, a, that's great. It's point. totally true. It's totally true. It's it's um it's it's hard it's sort of like and and then you hear what like bill maher said about the writers uh uh, uh, uh and he's like you're not owed anything 
And it's like show business is rough. And, you know, just because you succeeded in the 80s doesn't mean you get to continue. Like it's a rough, it's a whole thing is so rough. But Aaron Paul's right. I mean, I mean, he's, he, he, you know, there's the, the, the idea that the, the streaming thing has basically taken a socialist model and plunked it down in the middle of a capitalist system. Uh, and you're like, you know, like the success of Breaking Bad should, I mean, the profits that are being made on that movie should flow down to everybody as it does in a capitalist system. But in this thing, you're like, nah, we own it. We'll just run it as much as we want to. And you got paid already. You got paid. Like, that's but just- isn't there a case to be made that if you had success in the 80s doing that thing and you got paid at that time, um, yeah, you could have the Bill Maher point of view. You got paid for that. But if it's still living today and it's still being monetized and your performance is still you know, out there, then it you're still no, no. working. I agree with you that if a piece of material is continuing to be profitable, you should continue. Everybody should continue to get paid on it. What I'm saying is, what Bill Maher is saying is that just because you were on LA Law doesn't mean you get to be on Psych later. Now, I use that that thing because Corbin Burnson was on LA Law, and boy, when I when I went walked in there and saw him there, I'm like, holy shit, it's Corbin Burnson, and he told me the most filthy story about a famous. Um, actress uh uh i can't even tell i can't even tell with changing the name it's so filthy uh but 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 the beauty of that story is that corbin bernson was with that woman and you're like yeah you were you were in la law like i mean that meant a lot to me to work with corbin bernson and and the other guy that meant a lot to me was steven weber um i was like That's you know this dude really? was incredible like just so funny like he's one of those guys who I would well describe as like a leading man, uh, like a, a, a comic caught inside a leading man's body. Uh, like Weber is just funny, funny, funny. Um, and who's the guy? The guy his name's Michael. He was in those um, singing movies with uh, Elizabeth Banks. Um, he plays like the judge with her. Remember this guy? He he taught gentleman classes in psych. Oh, um, God. Michael Higgins. John Michael Higgins. Boy, what a treat that was. What a it's treat that hysteric. was. Yeah. It's there. Anyway, I wanted to say that before we moved on from psych. Uh, but the strike, you know, I, I've had, I'm really running out of, I don't know, I mean, I'm running out of a lot of things in addition to money. Uh, I'm running out of patience um just like how much longer like who's gonna break what's gonna happen like i just i don't know and then drew barrymore suddenly she's like i'm coming back and they're striking her now and they're in the audience the the writers guild like it's like things are crackling do you think that if so now it's no one wants to be in in a fight right but when you're in a fight you gotta use everything that you have available to to win. And the stuff that's happening in the negotiations feels like it's been a stalemate. And you're, you know, negotiating against people with all different interests. They make other products. You know, film and television isn't their main thing. So they're not going to really feel the pain. But if there was some tactic in the court of public opinion where like on October 15th, the unions, the WGA and the and the SAG guild 
just publicly said, maybe we drop, if you have multiple streaming subscriptions, maybe you just pause one of them for a couple months. You know, don't single out anyone because everyone has to work together at some point. But if you take the fight to the streets and you just public, because everyone's looking to drop one all the time. I mean, you're, you're right. either on one of these things that I could, if you're lucky enough to have a bunch of them. So it's just, you know, my, my, my theory is drop one. That should be something that you say, like everyone just advocates for someone dropping one of their streaming subscriptions until these labor issues are settled. And then we'll see if, you know, people sign up again or not, but it's a nice way to advocate because you're, you're not going to hit them in the pocketbooks by not making shows. The libraries are too deep right now. But I'm going to do cut that. off the revenue streams. I'm going to, I'm going to drop gonna one. I'm going to drop one right after this podcast. I know which one too. I know which one too. Everyone's got one. That's just kind of eating. They look I'm at their credit card thinking, bill and I'm they're like, like why, why am I paying, paying for this, this one? Fucking thing. I already watched that show. Yeah. I mean, let's talk to, yeah. let's talk to Fran about that. The drop one campaign. It's not a bad idea. It's dangerous because you won't probably sign up for it again. Like, you know, like, you signed, I signed up, I'm like a new one, yeah, I'll sign up, fine, 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 I'm supporting show business, but, you know, I think it'll- Well, there's always one show that gets you to yeah. sign up, Yeah, and then you never cancel it. Right. So it's like a dangling, you know, and that's how, that's how they get you, and then no one ever takes the effort to go online and cancel the subscription. Yeah. He's going to drop, drop one. He's going to drop Paramount Plus, my guess. Because it, I don't know. Then you get some cool Western shows on there, and you're right back in it. Well, I watch. I don't need that Western shit. I know I, that's I, what he's thinking. <laughs> I watched The Offer, and I loved it. Uh, and I watched Knoxville's show. I think it was. Oh no, that was on Hulu. But anyway, I watched The Offer. It was great. And then I'm like, I'm turning that sucker on in a minute. Um, do they have some good westerns on there? Is that where the uh, the 1871 is and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, I think they've got all, all of those shows are there. A the universe there, Yellowstone universe. Well, but you know, Amazon, Amazon comes with like your your shipping subscription. Yeah, so well, no, we keep dropping one. No, it's dropping you know, that one. Really, you know, they know. If that I they... dropped Amazon, my wife would drop me. Um, That's right. She, she, and by the way, like all seven or eight seasons of Psych are on Amazon like the full library when I went to see where they're living now. Which I don't, again, I don't think we're seeing any of that. I mean, uh, I don't know. How, I honestly don't even know how that works anymore. Like I know if they make a brand new deal like they did a couple years ago and we ended up on like the Hallmark Mystery Channel, like that came with a little something. But, but when it pops up on stuff that it's been on before, whether it's Amazon or Netflix or whatever, like I don't, I think somehow that happens like a tree falling in a forest while, while no one's around. Like I don't, I don't think anything's coming in. No, well they're they're licensing it. There's still a lot of money being yeah, of course someone's monetized. Yeah, but I don't think Jay There's and not, I. Are. No, no, <laughs> no. Um, so, uh. Is there anything else you want to promote, James? Any are you are you trying to make any movies? Are you try to direct. You know, uh, Rodé is also a director, is uh, so be nice to him. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I there was some stuff that I was pretty excited about before everything shut down. Um, I, I would say I'm still exci- excited about it, but uh, you know, it it'll it's clearly going to take some time before uh, I can I can get back on the horse again. So horror is it um, horror? Yeah, it's usually horror. It's almost it's almost always horror. Uh, so yeah, you know, once once we're all back up and and working again, um, I I hope to be behind the camera uh, as as soon as possible because I think that's that's what I've missed the most. Were um, you saying that facetiously, Jay? The horror? It, no, he horror. he he has a real uh, uh, love of horror movies, and he's you've directed horror movies, right? Yeah, I've only I've really only directed horror movies. I mean, I've done TV that's like all over the place, but when I actually grind and piece together tiny micro budgets, it's usually for for horror films. <laughs> yeah, and do you subscribe to that theory that pulling off a joke is like pulling off a scare, where there's a setup and a mislead and the tension, and then you deflate it? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean the anatomy of the. Uh, of nailing a joke and the anatomy of nailing a scare are not are not dissimilar, for sure. Yeah, I agree. I mean, having made Club Dread, I'm like, it, it started to feel the same. Set up, scare, you know, set up, scare, you know, definitely. Um, so, uh, and that's when, I, I remember you told me about the concept of uh, the surviving girl. Is that what it's called? Oh, the final girl, the final girl. Yeah, which is is like Jamie Lee Curtis is the final girl in Halloween, right? Because she survives. Is that right, yeah, James? It's an it's an arch it's an archetype that can be applied to just about any horror movie from the beginning of time. Um, and they call her the final girl because she usually, you know, is the good girl in the group. She's you know she's the one who's not having sex, not doing drugs. Um, is the only one that ever has any character development of any kind. Um, like she either has a problem at home or a sick family member or is is going through something um, as you land at, you know, wherever your main set piece is going to be. And then all the other kids are just there to get laid and get high. Um, and get so killed. You can usually, and get yeah, killed. <laughs> usually identify within, you know, the first five minutes of the film uh, who your final role is. Um, yeah, we talked about yeah, we that's that was back when you were doing your like your lists. That's, that's a great concept. She's almost like a superhero. Yeah. Like, yeah. She can't die. That's right. Yeah. Uh and I bring that uh, up because I, I talked to James um back when I was creating this app, Vouch Vault, uh, and I wanted him to sort of talk about the things that he loved the most and he talked about this final girl list. But at the end of this podcast, James, we all we vouch for something. Something we're watching, something we're reading, something whatever restaurant, anything. So um, I'm ready. I'm gonna I'm gonna go first. Um, I have been listening to uh, the podcast, and Hayes, tell me the real title. Is it Bust or Busted? It's Bust. Okay, so Bust is the is the Ryan Leaf story. And for those of you who don't know Ryan Leaf, uh, he was uh, a guest on our podcast recently but um he was the guy drafted number two to peyton manning in 1998 
Uh, and everybody was they were like, should we draft Ryan Leaf first or Peyton Manning first? Peyton Manning first? Or anyway, Peyton went first. Ryan Leaf went second. And then Ryan Leaf became known as the biggest bust in the history of the NFL draft. Uh, he became addicted to pain pills. He crawled into some houses and stole pain pills. He was arrested. He ended up in prison. Now, this is a guy who was at a $17 million contract, uh, collected $11 million of it, went to four different teams, and eventually ended up in Montana in prison. Um, and the story is told by him. And he's such a good storyteller, and he's so ridiculously honest. Like, uh, up until this, uh, my favorite uh, audiobook sort of storyteller was Robert Evans, The Kid Stays in the Picture. But this one is in the neighborhood of almost that good. It's so fucking good. There, there are 10 episodes. It's called Bust the Ryan Leaf Story. And Kevin Connolly, uh, who was an entourage, is, is the guy who, who sort of made it happen. He was the guy who interviewed him and, and recorded it. So, Remind me, was it like a breaking and entering that, that he got busted for? He did something well, like what you believe, right? Like it was burglary was, or something. He was working as a, as a basically a farmhand on, on places out in Wyoming, trying to like do something with his time. And he would drive by these ranch houses and these ranches with like, you know, and, and he'd look at him and be like, it was in the height of the opioid crisis. So he's like, and the, he'd go up to the house and ring the doorbell. Nobody's home. There's no doorbell cameras then. And, he, and nobody would answer. And he goes, I bet there are pills inside here. And so he'd force his way into a house, go into the bathroom, find the pills, and leave. And he said, he said these ranch houses became his pharmacy. Uh, and occasionally a guy would be asleep on the couch and he'd walk by, tiptoe him, steal, steal the pills and get out. Like he did. And eventually some, you know, they somebody called the cops and was like, they're like, what did he look like? They're like, he looked like Ryan Leaf. It was Ryan Leaf. <laughs> and so, but they, and so his offensive lineman from high school became a detective. He walk, you know, he walks in and goes, you've been breaking into houses, fella? And he goes, no, no, I was thinking about buying those houses. So I wanted to take a look at them and see what they were, what the inside was. And the guy's like, sounds good to me. And they let him go. And eventually... Eventually, he kept doing it, and eventually, he gets arrested and put in prison. It's a fantastic story because he's so honest. Incredible By the way, story. Have, you uh, heard, have you heard Patton Oswald do Bob Evans? No, is it great? I'll send it to you, man. I'll send it okay. to you. Okay, it's it, uh, it's yeah. Good. Uh, okay, so I, that's what I'm vouching for. Bust. What do you got, Ace? I uh, have been listening to more Jimmy Buffett this week than I probably have in 20 years. Um, and I've been thinking about him. I've been playing him for my young kids because I didn't listen to him for like 10 years. I took him for granted. And when he passed away, it was a great time to, you know, reintroduce him into the like our lives and the the way he was as a person and what he romanticized. The guy was an incredible entrepreneur. The fact that he did so many shows and people would drink so much beer at his shows that he just decided to start his own beer company. So at a Jimmy Buffett show, you were drinking Jimmy Buffett beer. I mean, that's kind of next level genius. His author uh, and my friend, um, this was 
Uh, last year, he turned 50, and I, I read, um, as a gag, I read uh, he, Jimmy Buffett wrote a book, A Pirate Looks at 50, and he's got so much like everyday wisdom in, in that book that he did. So I had read him that way. And the thing that I love most about Jimmy Buffett is I went to a concert once, or I went to a couple concerts, but it's the only concert where you can be walking out and you can see someone violent, violently puking in the bushes and you can, you're like, right on, man. That guy's got the spirit of the show. <laughs> He's going to be okay. And the guy can come up from the bushes puking and, and give you a thumbs up. And you're like, you get it. That's, I mean, if you're like at a, you know, Alice in Chains concert and you see someone throwing up outside, you're, you're going to walk the other way. But at a Buffett show, it was part of the culture. So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of playing the greatest hits. But uh, Jimmy Buffett is going to go in the vouch bowl. I've been listening to Jimmy all week too, uh, and there's so many. And we we had a broken lizard meeting recently. We were all talking about Jimmy Buffett and what a great, I mean, you know, that song about going to Paris uh, and marrying an actress named Kim, uh, like so good. And and son of a son of a sailor, and you know, like you know, Club Dread was about Jimmy Buffett. Um, like the character Bill Paxton played was about Jimmy Buffett. Uh, he was doing Jimmy Buffett. And so when we finished the film, Bill Paxton knew Lucy Buffett from somewhere. And he's like, and so he arranged through Lucy a screening in West Palm Beach for Jimmy Buffett to watch Club Dread. So me and Bill flew, Fox Searchlight flew us down to West Palm Beach and we're walking through the West Palm Beach airport and people would come up to Bill and be like, hey, man, I love you in Twister. He goes, oh, thanks a lot. And he'd hand him a $20 bill. And we kept walking. He goes, hey, I love you in Simple Play. Oh, you're the best, dude. And he'd give him a $20 bill. He goes, always carry a roll of 20s. Those people are going to be your fans. And they're going to come to the movie. They're going to bring a friend. Don't all even out. And I was like, okay. Uh, and uh, so then we go to uh, West Palm Beach. We go to like a multiplex and Jimmy Buffett is fucking there. And it's me, Jimmy Buffett in the middle and Bill on the other side. And every time like, you know, Bill's doing a joke about Jimmy Buffett. We did many jokes about him. Bill would grab Jimmy Buffett's leg and go, oh, man. And Buffett was laughing. And we're, I mean, we had an incredible time. Then we went out for fish tacos and drank beer. And I was like, this is too much. I mean, the guy is so cool. So cool. And we got, to, I got to know him over the years. So he's such a great guy. Uh, and the music was terrific. Terrific. Damn. So I'll jump on your vouch. I vouch with you. What do you got, James? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go music too. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to vouch for Tears for Fears. And then the reason I'm going to vouch for Tears for Fears is because uh, there's a whole bunch of 80s new wave bands that I never stopped listening to. I didn't really make it past, to be honest, like 1995 musically. I sort of still live in between the years of 1979 and 1995. Um, and it's fine. It's fine. It makes me happy. Um, but I will still go see those bands now when they tour behind like, you know, their new stuff. And and invariably the new stuff is is not very good. And, and you go to those shows anyway, because you know that after they play five or six songs off the new record, they're going to give you, you know, the stuff that you can get nostalgic about and, and that makes you, you know, think about, you know, your youth and things that you did that, that, you know, uh, made you the person that you are today. 
However, uh, Tears for Fears has broken that mold. Um, saw them recently at the Hollywood Bowl uh, behind their new-ish record, The Tipping Point. And I got to say, uh, it's a badass. Uh, it's a badass record. Like they have come back together in their in their sixties and and made music that's right on par with songs from the big chair, sowing the seeds of love. You know, the records that sort of define them from a different era. And like mad props to them um, for keeping their sort of fingers on the pulses of of what, you know, people care about these days and threading that needle. Um, because they played the whole they played every track on the album before they even started, you know, teasing wow. us with stuff from the day. And we were all just like, yeah, give us more. This is so good. So props to Kurt and Roland. Uh, props to Tears for Fears uh, selling out the Hollywood Bowl. It was a hell of a show. That's 18,000 seats. 18,000 seats. Incredible. Yeah. It's awesome to think they're still doing it. And it's good stuff. We love it. I just saw right you, James, at, at a Hatchie concert. Yeah, and I got so excited. I was like, I can't believe Jay knows Hatchie. Like, I knew I knew I liked Jay, but this makes me like him even more. So I walked over and I was like, Jay, Hatchie. And he was like, ah, I'm here for the opener. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, Hatchie was great. I mean, they did a real nice it's job great. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a big fan. Uh, anyway, Brilliant. thanks yeah. thanks for being a guest, James. We really appreciate it. It was so fun. So fun. Thanks, thanks, man. And let's uh, let's take this uh, drop one campaign. Let's uh, brainstorm it offline. See if we can get it out there. I love it. Maybe yeah. we'll get Sendel, your cousin, involved too, Jay. That's a huge <laughs> revelation for me. I can't yes. believe it. Yes. Uh, all right, Impossibly, goodbye. Possibly, possibly handsome man drops Netflix. That that's the headline that we can use. Nick so good looking. Sundle. Yeah, just uh, a good. <laughs> Mustache tails.